This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Levy Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the show, we welcome Andrew Whitehurst, biologist with the organization Healthy Gulf. He'll join us to talk about the Pearl River map turtle that's being considered for threatened species status by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. We'll also talk about other efforts, uh, conservation efforts by Healthy Gulf, including what's happening with the One Lake Project. Dr. Major's here, ready to answer your pet questions. Libby always likes to hear your brushes with nature. Join our conversation this morning. You can give us a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 7464 Email animals at mpbonline.org. A reminder that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursdays, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Libby. Let's uh, start with you. What sort of mid-January nature observations do you have with us for for us today? Our usual suspects, I guess, the usual (laughs) assemblage of winter birds at our feeder, and then uh, lots of cool little birds in the trees. Carolina wrens manage to sing no matter what's going on outside. I love their little spirit, so I've been listening to them. And uh, ruby-crowned kinglets are wonderful birds, tiny little beautiful jewels that we um, only have in the winter. But, you know, this is a great time also to look for hawks and eagles. The deciduous trees have lost their leaves and can get a good look at perching big birds. And uh, if you... um, want to get outside uh, anytime you can go close to a river, reservoir, big lake or along the coast. There are eagles all over the state now. I think we have in excess of 100 nests, I believe. And uh, so lots of places where you can see eagles and um, just kind of a reminder, we'll have immature eagles that are they are bald eagles, but they don't have the white head yet for, because they don't get those till they're about four or five until they're mature and ready to mate. So we've got um, mated pairs of the white-headed eagles around the state, and they you might watch them and find a nest. And then we've got, uh, I guess. Young birds, we would call those first four years that aren't mated yet, and they're hanging out. And often they have migrated down from cooler places in the north, and they hang out here in the summer. And so a lot of those will be gone um, as uh, we get warmer weather. But our bald eagles, that we have a, a good population of mated bald eagles as well. And um, Anyway, it's a fun thing to kind of go in search of. And then, of course, in association with watching eagles, you'll need to learn what black vultures and turkey vultures look like and how they soar because they can look the same. They can look similar to a to a, an eagle when they're soaring pretty high above your head. So it takes a you know, it takes a, a few seconds there to check on a few characters. Only looking at their head is what I usually do. But anyway, it's it, fun thing to get your bird book out and kind of study that so you'll know which big bird you're seeing is <laughs> soaring above you. 
So um, kind of cold and wet in central Mississippi this morning, and I think most humans try to avoid that by staying indoors or bundling up. But on my way to work this morning, I saw a bird uh, perched on a, a power line, and it kind of got me thinking. So remind us, what is it? how do the birds stay warm in the wintertime? <laughs> Hmm, well, um, you know, one of the ways I stay warm, I've got my down puffer coat right now, and they wear a down puffer coat all year. But in the fall, they um, molt their feathers, and they'll they get an extra fluffy set of fluffy, fluffy little downy feathers all on the right next to their skin, and that goes a long way to helping. Some of them do what I guess some people do, and find a warmer place to spend the, the winter. But, you know, we have a lot of birds that stay and do just fine. And, you know, birds live in the Arctic. Penguins are famous for what they do. So the, the main thing they do is grow those feathers and stay really well insulated. They're warm-blooded. Birds are warm-blooded like mammals are. And they, um, they do need a lot of fuel, a lot of food to stay warm, to keep that, you know, we, that's, I guess that's how we burn a lot of calories too, staying warm. And that's exactly what birds need a lot of food, which is why kind of, I guess, so many of us that enjoy watching birds justify bird feeders. You need to keep them clean and be sure that you're not spreading any disease at your feeder. But uh, that little extra pop, especially if you're feeding good things, if you're feeding them you know, black oil sunflower seeds, that gives them a lot of energy. And so I think that does help them through the winter. They certainly congregate around our feeders to get particularly black oil sunflower seeds. One of my other favorite observations about the birds in the wintertime is the shorebirds <clears throat> and the way they stick one leg up and, you know, they can stand on one leg and they kind of back and forth to sort of keep one, at least one uh, leg warm. So d do other birds do that or is it primarily just the shorebirds? No, I've seen perching birds do the same thing. But now they will do that even when it's warm and I guess they're just resting those leg muscles or doing a little exercise, a little yoga. I don't know. But anyway, yeah, that's that's another thing they do. And now, I guess as a reminder, birds do die when it gets really cold. That is, it is a stressful time. And uh, we talked a little bit about it, I think, last week. Last February, when we had that real cold weather, mm -hmm. we found a good many dead birds around our place. I know we have a friend that studies bluebirds for a living, and she just, you know, heartbreaking, just almost wiped out the population that she was studying the most intensely. Uh, that just too long, too cold. And I think, again, the, the problem might be finding enough food when you have to have that extra bit of warmth, and they, they just couldn't do it. Well, and I mean, that, as we all remember last February, that was, I mean, un unprecedented uh, cold for, for Mississippi, that's for sure. Yeah. So, uh, as always, Dr. Major is with us. So, Dr. Major, uh, last week we talked about uh, the importance of getting an annual checkup for your pet. And one other thing we talk about a lot with uh, pets and their health is uh, heartworms. So, if you could remind us all, what is a heartworm and why is it important to stay with preventative measures for our pets? Great question, and it is something that uh, sometimes people forget about. But heartworms are very, what shall I say, endemic in the South, but they're pretty much all over the whole country because of travel, uh, this sort of thing. They're spread by mosquitoes, and mosquitoes will take a blood meal. Uh, it stays in the mosquito for a little while, 
and then they can reinfect, <coughs> excuse me, the same dog or other dogs. As from the time that uh, the mosquito inserts the microfilaria, which are microscopic, it's originally called microfilaria. Microscopic, uh, actually, it takes six months, uh, roughly, to get to get an adult. <coughs> excuse me, an adult in the dog's heart. And canines, the canine type dogs, are most common as far as the uh, source. In other words, they are. Uh, somewhat specific uh, for heartworms. Actually, there have been cases where people have found, uh, either on autopsy or otherwise, uh, some heartworm apparently in a vessel in a person, but that's so very rare. We don't really worry about that. Their preventions are varied, and most of the preventions are a monthly type prevention. Uh, you need to give it the same day every month. Uh, they uh, basically uh, will prevent the heartworm if you're given it correctly and correct dosage for the weight of the dog, and it does vary with the weight of the dog. Uh, there are shots, uh, a six-month shot and a 12-month shot now that are effective against heartworms. And that takes some of the uh, human error, if you will, out of giving it same time every month. But uh, it's very important here in the South. If a dog's not on preventive, there's an excellent chance that it will uh, develop heartworm infestation. And then what do the worms do once they get in a dog's heart? Right. That's kind of hard to explain exactly, but they don't eat the tissue. They are actually in the bloodstream, in the heart, and they absorb their nutrients uh, in that fashion. They also produce literally thousands of microfilaria, which circulate through the body uh, with the blood, so they can have an effect there. But uh, they block the flow of blood. On x-ray, you can actually see changes in the shape of heart from a dog that has a heartworm infestation for any period of time. You can see changes in the heart. Some of the symptoms of heartworms would be coughing, a chronic cough, just like I have right this minute. <laughs> but coughing, uh, the other thing would be lethargy. In other words, a dog normally is, let's say, an active dog, and then all of a sudden you're seeing it become uh, very lethargic. Certainly, heartworms can cause that. And we also see in advanced stages ascites, which is accumulation of fluid in the abdomen, uh, maybe uh, the dog all of a sudden looks like it's pregnant, uh, which could be a male or a female as far as the heartworm ascites caused by the heartworm. And its effect on the heart, and it also affects the liver. So it can affect the whole body uh, because of uh, the nature of, of the heartworm. But it blocks the flow of blood primarily. But a lot of the effect has to do with the circulating microfilaria and just the presence of the heartburn. And is this primarily something that we need to worry about with our dogs, or do cats get heartworms as well? Yes, cats can get heartworms. It's a little different uh, scenario with the cats. Uh, primarily, it's more of a lung disease in cats. And certainly, uh, we don't see often a adult heartworm in the heart of a cat, but it's certainly possible. But... In the course of the uh, development of the heartworm, 
you get some severe lung diseases in some cats. This is Creature Comforts. Time for our first break of the hour. When we get back, we've got Wanda on the line. We'll get to her phone call, and we'll begin our discussion with our guest, Andrew Whitehurst, biologist and water program director with Healthy Gulf. We'll talk about the Pearl River map turtle and why these rare turtles need protecting, so stay tuned. You can give us a call this morning. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be back after this. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio. Or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest for the hour is Andrew Whitehurst, Water Program Director for Healthy Gulf. I'm going to talk with uh, Andrew in just a few minutes, but we do have a caller on the line. So we will also say good morning to Wanda calling in from Pontotoc. Good morning, Wanda. You're on the air with us, so go ahead. Thank you so much. In October, my husband and I saw a pileated woodpecker in our backyard on a tree, and we watched for several minutes with our binoculars. I'd like to know if um, if that's common in North Mississippi to see one. Also, have you seen one? And where did he go? We haven't spotted him again. I- I do see them because I've got um, a pair on our property, luckily, and I hear them more often than I see them, and that's wonderful to hear that call. And they're, I don't know how to, they're, they're not uncommon, I guess, but they're not terribly numerous either so it's it is right. it's a cool thing to see them really and yeah, yeah. Uh, i was talking about going to lakes and rivers and reservoirs to see eagles and that's also a very good place to see peleated woodpeckers they like big old trees they're a big yeah. bird and we're talking about them needing fuel they like um they they like the larvae of big moths and butterflies, you know, those great, the bigger right. kind of caterpillars. And so those things, I guess, tend to be around deeper woods and big trees. They're, um, they're cool animals, and they do live here year-round. Okay. And uh, they're, uh, they're spread pretty widely around the country. And um, I was real surprised when I first saw them in Oregon, and they are definitely there in the mountains in Oregon. Uh, the, the coastal range. I'm not sure if they're in the Cascades or not, but it's but it, it's definitely a cool thing to see them. And if you go, they they tend to um, maintain a territory. So if you go back to where you saw that one or somewhere right. close, there's a good chance that you will see it again. Uh, okay. Gosh, I'm trying to think. Behind the Museum of Natural Science in the Floors Bluff State Park, which I promote a lot, uh, you're very likely to see one there. Okay. 
Well, I was excited about it, and I wanted to share that. Thank you. Thank you for calling. Yeah, and that reminds people to get out and look for them. Thanks, Wanda. Good to hear from you this morning. Uh, John's on the line from Vicksburg. John, we'll get to your call in just a minute. Do we want to spend a few minutes with our guest? It is Andrew Whitehurst. Uh, good morning, Andrew. Thanks for joining us. If you would, start out by telling us a little bit uh, about your background and your interest in nature. <clears throat> My background is that uh, I grew up in New Orleans. Um, I've been in Madison, Mississippi since 1998. And... Um, I've always been a, a nature lover, particularly creeks and rivers. Uh, I'm a fisherman, and a fisherman learn a lot about uh, <laughs> their quarry and their habitat. But um, I went to Mississippi State University and got a master's from the School of Forest Resources <clears throat> in aquaculture. And uh, I did fisheries research at LSU for four years and went to law school at LSU after that in Baton Rouge. So I'm... I've got a biology background and a law background. So we mentioned uh, the organization Healthy Gulf. If you would, tell us a little bit about that and uh, your role with the organization. Uh, Healthy Gulf is a 26-year-old environmental advocacy group based in New Orleans and working on policy issues in the five Gulf states, you know, five states bordering the Gulf. Uh, I'm the Mississippi uh, field person for Healthy Gulf. It used to be called the Gulf Restoration Network. Our uh, director is Cynthia Sartu, and we focused on the Clean Water Act, uh, ocean policy, the Marine Mammals Protection Act, the nutrient pollution that creates the Gulf dead zone, monitoring of the oil and gas industry for spills. We do that by flying planes, um, volunteer pilots, and we are um, working on a just transition away from fossil fuels, uh, bearing in mind what the fossil fuel use has done to the climate, especially uh, along the Gulf Coast where we see the changes of sea level rise and subsidence together and land loss. So one of the things we're going to talk uh, with uh, Andrew about this morning is the Pearl River map turtle. We'll get to that discussion in just a minute, but we do have a couple of phone calls on the line. So let's start in Vicksburg. John has called in. Good morning, John. You're on the air with us, so go ahead. Oh, John left, so let's go instead to Matt, who's called in today. Good morning, Matt. You're on the air, so go ahead, please. Hey, awesome. Um, it's a little bit off topic, but uh, I have a Labradoodle, and I guess it's the same with any dog, but when I take them out to go to the bathroom, I notice that, you know, before they'll go, they always, it's like they're sniffing around for the perfect spot. <laughs> and I was wondering, what are they looking for in that perfect spot? Dr. Major, any thoughts? That's an unusual question. I would say that a lot of times they're actually checking the scent to see if other dogs or other animals have uh, urinated or defecated in that area. Uh, sometimes I think they do it to really kind of cover the scent of other animals. That's my, my thoughts on it. But, yes, they're looking for a perfect spot. You'll see dogs that may wander around for... Uh, not a long, long time, but certainly wander around looking for that spot where they want to go. Yeah, it's I almost wish like I could have had a better, better answer for you. It's almost like sometimes oh. it's a circular pattern. I know, it, and even my cat in his litter box, he sometimes searches around for a little bit before <laughs> before he finds the perfect spot. So, okay, well, thanks. I, I think that brings a little bit of insight into it. Yeah, 
you know, some some dogs especially uh, look for a place that's almost hidden. They'll go behind a shrub or in a place where nobody can watch them go. I don't know whether it's exactly why, but they're secretive sometimes about where they would uh, do their business. So that's an interesting topic, and maybe we can learn some more about that. Thanks, Matt, for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting with our guest today, Andrew Whitehurst, the Water Program Director for Healthy Gulf. If you have a question uh, about uh, the work that Healthy Gulf does, you can give us a call. If you have a pet question or if you want to tell us what you've seen when you've been out and about in nature, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464, send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Andrew, the, I was kind of happy to hear this. You know, I, before we came on the air, I asked about, well, why do they call it a map turtle? And you showed me a picture of it, and it said, because it looks like a map. So I like it when there's a very simple explanation like that. But if you would, tell us a little bit more about map turtles. Well, <clears throat> these animals have a, an amazing coloration on their skin. They're beautiful. Um, the lines around their head look like the contour lines on the topographic map. Um, and they're spread across the Gulf Coastal Plain rivers, uh, I think all the way, you know, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas. <clears throat> and the Pearl River map turtle is the one that we're um, talking about today because there's an open comment period on the listing of this turtle as threatened under the Endangered Species Act by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The comment period closes on Monday, the 24th. And um, the thing about the, they're beautiful. Um, they're, they've been within one river system for enough geologic time that they've become a distinct species. And uh, genetic research confirmed this about 10 years ago. And it was a scientist at Southern Miss that... Um, made the publication in, in 2010. We study ecology in school and read about speciation. And so this turtle right in our own backyard put a face on that concept, which is, you know, it's, it's significant for the state and the river. And it's cool that it happened. Um, sense of place is often talked about in Mississippi, you know, literature and so forth. But this turtle definitely checks off the box for sense of place because it's only found in the Pearl River system. It's one of two endemic turtles found there. So did you have a personal involvement in recognizing it as a distinct species? Well, um, when I worked at the Science Museum, I made this nice poster uh, in 2010 um, and put it in the aquarium section where I was working at the time. But um, I didn't have anything to do with the initial research that happened in 2008, 2009 that led to its being separated genetically that was different folks i give you credit for you displayed them beautifully and um uh in the aquariums and shared it with the public a lot and um i think you encouraged those biologists to work on it too I think really. bob jones <laughs> and will selman used to see your turtles in the tanks yeah right the museum has these turtles it did have them in the Pearl River tank uh, 10 years ago, and we were just alerting the public to the fact that they were there and they could read about the, the new speciation, you know, new species separation is what happened. We thought that this turtle and the one in the Pascagoula River were the same animal for a long time. But um, 
based on genetic and morphological characters, the Pearl River turtle is different enough um, in its genetic makeup that it's qualified for its own species. Um, so um, you talked about it, uh, that it's under consideration for listing as a threatened species, I think, and we've often heard that and endangered. So if you could talk a little bit about both of those and, and what's the difference. Right. Um, under the uh, Endangered Species Act, plant and animal species may be listed as either endangered or threatened. <clears throat> endangered means a species is in danger of extinction throughout all or a significant part of its range. And threatened is a lower classification. It means a species is likely to become endangered within the foreseeable future. It's a matter of degree. So um, you, you would first do a threatened listing and, and try to recover the species. And if that didn't work, it could go to the next or the, the worst um, situation where it's an endangered so what uh, what are uh, pr the primary threats to the the Pearl River map turtle? Well, in the um, the literature that supports the the listing, it's called a twelve month finding. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service gave the following reasons for listing the Pearl River map turtle. Started off with habitat loss or degradation, the collection of animals. There are people that are collecting these for the pet trade uh, and shipping them. Um, to other countries. Climate change, um, particularly sea level rise, because the lower reaches of the Pearl River um, are influenced by the tide, and as the tide, you know, as the saltwater line gets higher up these rivers, the, the habitat for these freshwater turtles goes, you know, it gets worse, it degrades. Uh, also, in... Um, in the, the realm of climate change, increasing temperatures, generally air temperatures, can have an effect on the, um, the egg, egg hatching. Um, these turtles lay eggs in uh, nests that they dig in sandbars. They need rivers with broad sandbars. And so the, the higher the temperature, um, higher temperatures can change the sex ratios of the hatchlings more males or more females depending on the temperature so it can throw off the population that way and then um, those are the three threats they also focused on uh, water quality which is uh, channel modifications including impoundments uh, agriculture sediment and pesticides that come from uh, normal farming operations development and urbanization and then mining uh, mining for sand and gravel disrupts rivers um, and can disrupt the habitat for these turtles. This is uh, Creature Comforts. we got a couple calls on the line. We need to take another break. When we get back, we'll continue talking with our guest, Andrew Whitehurst, about the Pearl River map turtle. We'll also, later in the show, hope to talk about some of the other work that the Healthy Gulf is doing. And as I said, we got a couple of calls online to get to as well. If you want to join the conversation this morning, you can call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Back with more after this, so stay tuned.
You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hardfield. Our guest for this hour is Andrew Whitehurst, Water Program Director for Healthy Gulf. Uh, We're talking about the Pearl River map turtle and also looking for your questions and comments this morning. Let's head back to the phone lines. We will start in Philadelphia. Tom has called in today. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air with us. Good morning. Uh, I live near the headwaters of the the Pearl River, and I was just wondering how far north up the river system that the Pearl River map turtle had been found. Well, the the reports that support this... um, listing and the, the research that's been done um, I think go all the way up to Neshoba County it, it you know says that there are 1,279 river kilometers or that's 794 miles of the Pearl including the West Pearl the main stem of the Pearl and several tributaries but I saw in some charts that Neshoba County was one of the counties that they um, they surveyed for them in so probably lower numbers up there but um right there yeah they're in the, the, the headwaters of the pearl okay great thanks tom Thank you. good to hear from you this morning we'll stay on the phone lines our friend sue from beaumont has called in good morning sue good morning and, and i'm glad to I'm glad he's here so i will ask your guest a question <clears throat> excuse me uh people keep posting pictures on facebook of these turtles that with big clumps of dirt on their back and trees growing out of it. Say, this turtle just woke up and he's carrying around this little island on, on his back. Is that possible? Or, or, I, I said it was fake to me. I don't know, Sue. Um, <laughs> I've seen those pictures, too. So, What do you think about it? Well, I suppose if um, the turtle's dug in for the winter in a ditch or something like that and has waked up and pushed himself off the bottom... He could carry a big glob of um, <laughs> his bed with him, <laughs> but I've never seen it happen. I mean, I've seen turtles that have algae growing on their shells, pretty thick at times, but um, they bask in the sun to try and regulate their body temperature, and the sunlight is supposed to kill that algae. So I haven't seen, you know, in aquariums you see turtles that are fouled with uh, green algae, but out in nature... Not just a big clump of dirt. I don't see anything rotten on the back of them. You know, at the museum, we always felt like they tried to get that stuff off their back, too, didn't they? You know, oh, they, we scrubbed they, them. Yeah, yeah, because you, yeah, we, we, it, it, it's supposed that it's not healthy for a turtle to have all that. You know, that's their skin. On right. the top of their shell is their skin. So um, We had heat was, lamps for them hung at different mm-hmm. heights, and they could you know, kind of self-select which heat lamp they wanted mm-hmm. in the terrarium. But we also had to clean them when they got kind of dirty. Yeah. So I assume those pictures were fabricated. But I can't prove that. But don't turtles, even if they hibernate, don't they have to come up to breathe? I mean, they can't go without air buried in the mud like that, can they? I mean, how, how do they breathe? They do have some air exchange through their skin, don't they? Like salamanders do. Like, and I, I think reptiles have a little bit of that going on too. Yeah, we, we need and, a sure enough turtle tur- expert yeah, to tell that. Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. not the sure enough turtle yeah, expert. We'll, we'll do some more work on that, too. But <laughs> I think they have to – I think that they – when they – now, the literature says that turtles do not actually hibernate. 
that they dig in and stay, but they stay a long time. So I assume that when they estivate and they're in the mud like that, that they can, I guess estivate's the right word for them. Estivate. We use that with salamanders, that they are doing some little bit of air exchange just enough so that they don't have to come up as much. You know, we've we've gone so far as to time our um, alligator snapping turtles, and they do eventually have to come up, but they can stay down for an hour. Oh, well, these people are, are seeming like, when they post these photos, they're, they're, they're asserting that these turtles have been under the mud for months or something, you know. That's how they got that island on their back. <laughs> yeah, right, I uh, haven't seen that. I guess I'll have to search for this. Thanks for calling in, Sue. And, you know, shock, the Internet has fake stuff on. <laughs> it could be fake, yeah. So, but anyway, that that's, uh, yeah, who knows what's out there. A little Photoshop make and, and, and clickbait, I guess they call that. So, Sue, always good to hear from you. Thanks for the phone call. Uh, let's stay on the phone lines next. Off to Brandon we go. Riley has called in. It's your turn, Riley. You're on the air. Go ahead. Hey, gang. Thanks for having me. Um, my question is about uh, community outreach and and public knowledge on projects going around uh, the res. For instance, right now, uh, back in the corner of Pelehatchee Bay or that kind of southeast corner, some huge clear-cutting going on both along Lakeland and along Spillway. I'm just curious to know um, if people really know what these impacts do and how the community can get involved is kind of curb this unfettered growth that's just making our mud pit muddier. I heard something about that on a, <clears throat> a phone call about a week ago. It was reported to one of the people that um, volunteers for Pearl River Keeper. And the, um, the dredging that has to happen in Pillahatchee Bay can't make islands in the channel anymore. And so the spoil, the dredged up muck that they take out has to go someplace on land. And it's my understanding that the Pearl River Valley Water Supply District has cleared some of its holdings, forest holdings, so that it can store dredge spoil when it needs to dredge the channels in Pillahatchee Bay. You could call the Pearl River Valley Water Supply District and confirm that, but um, you know, they own the land around the reservoir, and they, they, they're the leaseholder. Well, they, they make leases with the public, and they, they can sell land as well and timber. So perhaps they sold some timber, and then they've got a clear spot where they can put the spoil. Yeah. I know that people can go to those board meetings and speak. Okay. Yeah. And and so how are they offsetting these wetlands? Because what they're doing is if they're going to be filling in wetlands, where are the wetlands going to move to? I don't know the answer to that one. And whether they had to get a 404 dredge and fill permit from the Corps or whether this was exempted, um, that's a question for their engineering staff. Okay. It's just a little concerning. I, I've moved here from elsewhere and... Um, uh, coming from Chattanooga, where, where rivers and creeks are very protected and sacred and, and you know, uh, used for more than just fin and fur. Um, and just, you know, I, I hate to see people not really understanding what's going on. So, um. Yeah, I would go to the Pearl River Keepers and ask those questions. 
and I think you could I think you'd get a, a an answer. I'm sorry that we don't know more about it, but I I know that um, other people have concerns, and I, I've known people that have gone to the board meetings of the um, the water district and um, asked questions in that forum. And and to to wrap it up, thanks for your time. Um, is this concerning for y'all for the turtles to have more of this? growth and neighborhoods and runoff and pesticides and dog poop flowing into our waterways yes to, to put a short answer on it yes that this turtle doesn't like the reservoir uh strangely um it i think five percent of its habitat was changed to the reservoir you know when back in 1963 when they dredged dug and dredged the pearl the uh, ross barnett and you don't find the Pearl River map turtle um, in that section it doesn't have its habitat requirements so downstream though you know the effects that flow downstream in the rest of the Pearl are certainly of concern with the pesticides sedimentation um, that sort of thing yes map turtles are, are definitely more prevalent and healthier when they live in fairly fast flowing rivers and streams with sandbars that they can get out on for basking and they need logs in those rivers so yes they're looking for natural rivers and that's where they do well they can live to be you know 30 years old if they have good habitat and we have substantiated we've got a number of of turtles that are I guess they're not named, but they're numbered, and Bob Jones may have actually given them a name, but when he surveys every five years, he's found some of these turtles for upwards of 30 years. All right, Bali, thanks again for the call. And uh, just a reminder, uh, Libby mentioned the Pearl River Keepers. That's a group dedicated to uh, the health of the Pearl River. And so, Riley, if you're interested, might maybe uh, Google that and get some more information about that and, and see uh, if maybe you can help out or, or just learn more uh, via the Pearl River Keepers. Our guest today is Andrew Whitehurst, uh, the Water Program Director for Healthy Gulf, and we've been talking uh, primarily uh, this morning about the Pearl River map turtle. Um, Andrew, we talked uh, earlier about uh, the threatened and some of the threats to the uh, the Pearl River map turtle being loss of habitat, uh, the pet trade, uh, global warming. If it is successfully listed as a threatened species, what happens to where we can begin to maybe work on alleviating some of those issues? You mean a recovery? Right. I mean, what what is why is the purpose of putting something on the threatened list? What what can you do after that to maybe uh, increase the population or make it better for the the turtles, the, their habitat and things? Well, one of the one of the things is the food source for this animal. Um, this is a turtle that has small males. And, and larger females, and some of the fe- females have uh, large heads and jaws. are called megacephalic. So, um, the larger jawed and headed females eat mussels. <clears throat> the males eat smaller invertebrates, um, insect larvae, things that they can scrape off of the the algae along on the logs and other structures that they find in the river. But the females have the ability to crush mussel shells. And so one of the gaps in the knowledge about this turtle is anthropogenic or man-made impacts to the mussel population. 
uh, in the pearl. I mean, we know generally if you dredge a river or, or turn it into um, a reservoir with a dam, the mussel populations change. But I don't see that the mussels have some have um, recent you know scientific surveys about them in the pearl from any of the literature that supported the listing. So I think they, the scientists do mention that the food source is the, the biggest thing to try and work out and to see what we can do to improve um, the, the feeding, especially on the mussels. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We've got a caller on the line that we will get to after this last break of the hour. Our guest for the hour is Andrew Whitehurst. He is with Healthy Gulf. Uh, if there's still time for you to work in a question or comment this morning. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. Back to wrap things up after this last break. Hi, I'm Jason Klein from Fix It 101. If you ever thought about changing the doorknob or fixing a leaky faucet, some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. Kevin Farrell here on Creature Comforts with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson and Levy Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Our guest for this hour is Andrew Whitehurst from Healthy Gulf. If you missed any of today's program, you can always subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app or download the MPB Public Media app. That way you can listen to all the MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. Uh, we've got a caller on the line, so let's go back to the phones and say good morning to Greg, who has called in from Biloxi. Greg, it's your turn. Go ahead. Hey, good morning, and... Uh Thank you for taking my call. I owe you a phone call back, so I was calling back with information. So I apologize for, for being off topic with uh, Mr. Whitehurst. I do appreciate what he's doing in the, in the show. It's very interesting. Um, Dr. Major, I called a month or so ago about and, and mentioned an app that a friend of mine, actually soon to be a family member, um, developed some time ago that uh, people can use uh, for their dogs that identifies toxic plants uh, that may be out when they're walking their dog, keep their dog from uh, eating those dogs, eating those plants. They can take a picture of it on their phone, and it'll tell them whether or not it's toxic or not. The name of the uh, app is Pooch Protect, P-O-O-C-H Protect. And uh, as I understand it, you can just take a picture of a plant, and uh, it'll tell you whether or not the plant is, whether or not it's dangerous for your dog to eat it. Well, that's great information. Uh, and certainly there are plants that are toxic to cats and dogs, and uh, it would be good to have that information. Uh, sounds yeah. great. Pooch, Pooch Protect is the name of it, right? Pooch Protect, yeah. That's, I've not seen it, but uh, they mentioned it to me when I saw them some time ago and then I asked again so I just want to get that information to you and your listeners all right, uh, Greg, thanks very much. Uh, I, I do remember your call. And again, Pooch Protect, if uh, someone is out there, uh, would like to try to download that app so that they can uh, make sure their dog doesn't get into something it shouldn't uh, when they're out uh, taking him him or her for a walk. Let's stay on the phone lines. Next, we'll go to Florence, and it's our friend Roger. Good morning, Roger. Go ahead. Good morning. Good morning, Andrew. Long time no here. Hey, Roger. 
done a good job, and I'm very proud of you. I wanted to be sure that we should get started talking, and, and well, I don't mind the other calls and the other subjects, but I want to get around to the, what I perceive as a grave threat, not just to Mays Lake, but to many other aspects of the Pearl River by the two lakes project. So can you get started on that? I don't have a specific question, but let it rip, Andrew. Thank you. You mean the the One Lake project? I meant the One Lake. I guess that's the name now. Yes. Um. Well, it would dredge ten miles of the Pearl uh, to create a lake between Lakeland Drive or Highway 25 and uh, Richland down around Interstate 20, and it would disrupt uh, habitat for the gulf sturgeon and the other map turtle uh, the sawback turtle the ring sawback turtle that we know is in the pearl and is also threatened already and if this second turtle becomes a threatened species that would be another animal that this uh, project would disturb the habitat for so um, it's a flood control project and um, it's not without controversy, um, particularly for the habitat destruction that it'll do. It will take um, 1,862 acres of wetlands along the river um, in those 10 miles and then dredge the river and fill the banks so that uh, those banks can be <clears throat> developed and be higher. And uh, it would move the lowhead dam from the waterworks curve down to Richland, Mississippi. So impound the, the section with a, another lowhead dam farther down. And um, a lot of things are, are not well understood about it. It's uh, engineering and what it would do to roads and bridges, uh, how much old toxic waste sites, how many toxic waste sites it might disturb. There's landfills and things like that along the river where it would have to remove soil. So, um, yeah, it's certainly of concern for the existing threatened species and for this one, if this one makes it on the list as a final candidate. So uh, what do organizations like Healthy Gulf do uh, in a situation like this? Is it trying to raise public awareness, um, advocacy? W w what what can you do on, on a project like the One Lake? Well, right now we're waiting for another version of the draft environmental impact statement to come out from the sponsors. The sponsoring agency that is um, pushing this is the Rankin-Hines Pearl River Flood and Drainage Control District, a local levy board. And they've been going back and forth since 2018 with versions of the draft environmental impact statement. They sent it to the Army Secretary at the Pentagon, Army Secretary for Civil Works. And there's not a, a final response to comments yet, but that is supposed to happen in March. We don't know. It's a the deadline has slid backwards um, for a few months now. And so when that comes out, the federal agencies will have a, a chance to read it and review it, and then it will be published in the Federal Register for public comment 
and that's when we would get involved again. Only got about uh, 30 seconds left. If someone is interested in the work of Healthy Gulf, wants to find out some more information about the work that you do, uh, where would they go? We have a website, uh, healthygulf.org. And I wanted to say that um, people have a chance to comment on this turtle listing. And right now there's an action alert letter hosted by Audubon Delta. And you can find it at our website. We've shared it, uh, our Facebook site, Healthy Gulf. And you can also find the Facebook site for Audubon, Mississippi Coastal Bird Stewardship Program. They've got it as well. And you can um, personalize a letter to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service about this, this turtle listing. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of MPB Think Radio, funding provided in part by listeners. If you need to hear today's show or previous show, one way to find it is go to mpbonline.org slash creature comforts. Our show was engineered today by Liz Gill, and our call screener was Jason Klein. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest Andrew Whitehurst, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned because up next, it's autocorrect. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio.